0: Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com local today. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished a new sunroom, Mr. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows. So you can do this and this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com local today. Hello there and welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host Dan the Viking. I would like to start off this week with a little bit of, let's say, housekeeping and I would like to give a special thanks to the two, there are only two so far, I'm hoping to get a few more, but to the two uh, listeners who have left me a review on iTunes. That is Mida25, just says, very informative podcast from the Viking. So that's actually somebody I grew up with and someone I went to school with. Uh, And one who I actually don't know, which is a username, which is Sniper Warlock, which says, "Uh, got to hear you from you doing your shows with Lee on Realm of the Supernatural podcast, liked you on there, so searched you up. And here we are, very easy listening and very factual to history made easy, love it, A+. plus. So I'm guessing that that might be an American if they're giving me an A+, plus because we don't do pluses very much in this country, we do A's and A-stars, so I'm guessing that, uh, that, that review has come from an American. So like I said guys, we are on iTunes, um, and if you do listen to us on iTunes, please feel free to leave me a review, because the more reviews I get the more fans I get and the more people are going to listen to this podcast. So hopefully that way we can get a bigger fan base and we can get more people interested in what we do here at This Week in History. Like I said, I would say that I would give a shout out to anybody who put something on the group this week. I'm just going to say your first name, Pat, because I have no idea how to pronounce your surname, but Pat from Livonia in Michigan. Hello to you. So thank you for listening. This week, guys, we are going to pretty much follow on from what we did last week. And that last week, obviously, we covered the Black Death and we went into the Great Plague of London in 1665. This week's going to be a little bit of a follow-on from that, which is why I haven't played the game this week, because we are following on to the following year, which is 1666. Now, 1666, for most of you English or British listeners out there, You will be well aware of this year, and you'll be well aware of the facts that happened. However, from my speaking to certain friends and listeners from the States, you have absolutely no idea what happened in 1666. So, I will be enlightening you this week. And 1666 for the British was the year of the Great Fire of London. Now, this is possibly one of the most famous events in In English history, and it was what we would say the end of old London. So, to put it into a little bit of context to you, old London is you know the Tudor London, the London that you'll see with William Shakespeare, that old-fashioned style buildings with the you know house upon house upon house with the you know the jetties coming out on the houses, real close confined streets with you know waste in in the poorer areas definitely waste just thrown into the streets that mud streets the cobbled streets for the slightly richer areas and you know the the thatched housing and things like that all of that old-fashioned style london buildings that, that you may may be slightly aware of they are gone after 1666 so This is why we find 1666 and the Great Fire of London such a real big thing in British history. So we'll talk through a little bit of how it started, some of the conspiracy theories behind it. Now I'm not much for conspiracy theories but there are some very, very poignant ones when it comes to the Great Fire of London and certain things that do make a little bit of sense when you look at them from that conspiracy side. Now the first thing to remember is, during this time, a lot of Londoners were dying. You know, the city gates had just been reopened. Coming into 1666, the city gates had just been reopened. The death toll from the from the Great Plague had started to die down. It was dying down to a point that the king actually returned back to London. So, this gave you a little bit of a, especially the the, the Londoners that were living there gave him a little bit of sense of calm and, you know, getting back to normal. With the king returning to London, it seemed like life was going back to normal. And with this, you know, this series of events that were going on, London was starting to rebuild itself. It was starting to recover from losing 100,000 people. And 1666 was, as I'm sure you've probably already picked up on the fact that 666 is the number for the devil and going back to last week's episode like I said with the religion and religion being so prominent in western society the year the 666 1666 was considered the year of the devil and a lot of people you know when you're going into 1666 and, and the plague was already happening in London they all believed that this was god punishing them this was the end of the world and then all of a sudden this fire happens in the summer and it actually happened on the 2nd of september 1666 so throughout they had this really hot summer with real high winds strong winds and and heat does not create a good environment for a fire to stop It, it it fuels the fire and this is what happened and the story goes that there was a baker Called Thomas Fariner. Now he was the Royal Baker. When you say the Royal Baker, the, the, the Royal family had more than one baker. Um, this gentleman happened to live down Pudding Lane, which is it's a road in. It doesn't exist in London anymore, but Pudding Lane would have been basically. It was called that due to the fact that down this road there were. Cake shops and pie shops and bakeries, and it was a slightly better area of London, and it had, the, you know, it was a bit more of a shopping area of London where people could go and buy puddings, and that's why it was. That's why it was called Pudding Lane. The bakeries for the king were kept miles from where the king actually lived, and there was a good reason for this. The bakeries and delicatessens and things like that. In this time, were extremely dangerous places to work. You're talking about an area, or a work area, where it's an open fire. These these were open kilns. They had the the old stuff. What you'd consider today as almost like a pizza oven. That style of building, where they would cook the bread. Now, flour again is a very flammable. Material which I wasn't actually aware of how flammable it was until I watched a few videos on YouTube of of flour igniting. It's really flammable. And when you're talking about open fires and coal and things like that that are used to cook these breads and cakes and things like that, it does make you realise how dangerous it was. Stray embers, once they cleaned the oven down they, there's a potential that there was a stray ember that laid on the floor ignited some flour or ignited some kindling that was inside the bakery and it set ablaze. Now that is one story another story is that he didn't actually turn the oven off completely however later in quests both him and his family claimed that you know they, they checked everywhere they guaranteed that these ovens were turned off there was no fire left in these ovens now there's two ways you can look at that you can look at that from an outsider's point of view that goes well they're only saying that to cover their backside because there's actually no way of proving whether those fires were turned on or turned off so you're taking the baker's word for it the other way to look at it is potentially they are telling the truth and a stray ember on the floor or a little bit of, a tiny bit of fire that's on the floor that could have gone unnoticed. And around one o'clock in the morning, this is when the bakery ignited. Now, as it ignited, the family was forced upwards to the roof or to the top floor where they then jumped down. The maid that they had in their house was too scared and too frightened and she refused to jump out of the window. Now because of this she was actually the first victim of the Great Fire of London. We don't know her name unfortunately but like I said she was the first victim. It's a weird way to think that this fire and how big it actually was and how quickly it caught on. So I'll give you a little bit of a context to that. Now... When I said earlier that London houses were built with jetties, what that means is the first story was built as a normal story and then it would be almost like a balcony that would go out and then it would probably jut out maybe two or three feet and then it would go up again and then the next level would jut out again about two or three feet and then go up and so on and so forth. To the point that in certain houses, certain streets, the bottom of these houses could be maybe... 20 feet apart and the street could be quite wide but when you got to the top of the house you could potentially shake hands with the guy opposite you that's how close these houses jutted out into the central london and this did make obviously the streets very dark very dingy and it was it was mainly to do with sanitation as well they did this one because it crammed more people into the houses and two if you were throwing anything out of your window onto the floor below you're not going to drag it down the side of someone else's window if your windows jutted out ever so slightly. So, that was the, one of the reasons behind that. The problem with that, when the fire caught, it was very easy for that fire to spread from house to house because they were so close together. In these days, the houses were made out of wood, wood and mud mixture, and that obviously, again, can be quite flammable now there has been tests done on this type of doors and this type of walls and they do actually apparently live up to what are known as today's fire standard regulations so these doors were unbelievably strong and they can withstand a fire however with the tiniest crack in these doors or the tiniest split in any of the cl- uh, the mud or clay on the outside the door would ignite within seconds and this is going back to sixteen hundred London, seventeenth century London. Very, very few houses had any perfect walls or doors. In other words, they were totally screwed. They didn't really have much chance in the in the matter. And you know, just to to you know to let you guys know that like, this wasn't just a, a little fire. I mean, you are talking the entire city of London. Caught ablaze from this fire on Pudding Lane. Now, they archaeologists have actually found um, some pottery that was discovered on Pudding Lane, sort of years later. With uh, the testing that they've done on it, they've they realised that the temperature actually got to 1,250 degrees centigrade. Uh, for you Americans out there, that's 2,280 degrees Fahrenheit. So that just gives you a little bit of a perspective on, on the size of this fire and, and, you know, the winds as well. You know, fires in this time, or in, in any time, really, any any fire is assisted by wind. And the, the high winds that London was experiencing at this time definitely played a big part in this. And it did, you know, create this inferno that Londoners just couldn't get out of. And like I said, with... With it being the way it was, you know, it it ignited very quickly and it it spread very quickly. Now, the Lord Mayor of London at the time was a man named Thomas Bloodworth. Now, he could have stopped this fire. He actually visited the fire on Pudding Lane in the early hours of the morning. He was woken up and told this fire has, has started. And he was quoted, this isn't my quote, he was quoted to saying... A woman could piss it out. So he really didn't think that this was a big fire. Or that it was going to amass into this huge fire. You've got to remember. This time period in London. Fires were very very common. You know a lot of houses caught fire. It wasn't unheard of. You know there was even a a point that the, the mayor made sure that every house in London had buckets and ladders. So... They were aware of fires in London. They, they This wasn't something that they'd never known before. They you know, they really didn't think much of it at the time. Obviously, this was you're talking maybe five, six o'clock in the morning. This fire had only been going on for a few hours. It hadn't really picked up that much pace. Now, the fire actually burned from Sunday the second of September, like I said in the early hours, about one o'clock in the morning. It burned until Thursday, the 6th of September. So this fire went on for four days. So that, you know, you can imagine a fire in a city that's that compact and that squished. You can imagine how how big this fire actually got. So, obviously, the first, we know the first victim. Officially, there were only six deaths during the fire of London. Now, that, can be debated. The fire obviously reached such a high temperature; it is possible that certain people were burnt alive and just couldn't. You know, there was no remains; they couldn't be identified afterwards. Officially, like I said, there was only uh, only six deaths. The first one, like I said, we know was the maid for the Farina house. The second confirmed death was actually a lady who was taking shelter in Saint Paul's Cathedral. Now. St. Paul's Cathedral, if if anyone's seen the London skyline, St. Paul's Cathedral is a massive, massive building. Now, the St. Paul's Cathedral from the 17th century was actually bigger than the St. Paul's Cathedral today. So that gives you an, an idea on the sheer scale of the size of this building. And it burnt to the ground. It had to be rebuilt and it was a little bit in a in a bad way it was under reconstruction anyway it was actually being reconstructed by Sir Christopher Wren and a few years before that he actually was quoted saying that it might be better just to rip the cathedral down and start again obviously this is what he did now he he had to you know design St Paul's Cathedral basically from scratch and obviously he kind of got his wish but probably not in the way that he wanted to obviously now like i said St Paul's Cathedral is an absolute monument in London and you know we have Christopher Wren to, to thank for designing that so when you look at the great fire and you look at how quickly it spread and how you know how dangerous it was in the in the 17th century you can see now how How it would have started from a a small fire in inside a bakery, to how quickly it would have spread due to the fact that the houses were not in good condition, the houses were too close together, and the streets as well. A lot of the streets, they you know, you didn't have the gaps that you had in streets. Houses were literally crammed together. There were, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people living in London at this time, and it does create that ability to understand the amount of people and the, the close proximity to which these people lived it's it's hard to imagine nowadays because we don't really have that style of living anymore and you you have to look back at old photos of, of 17th century London to, to fully grasp the understanding of how close these streets were there is actually a road in York which is near where I live called the Shambles. Now if you ever google that it's called the Shambles. It's like a shopping street now. But that will give you an idea of how close these houses were together. The road itself at the bottom you've got a bit of a distance but like I said when you look up you can see how close these houses and you could literally touch the doors the you know the windows from leaning out. And that gives you the the vastness and that the speed that this caught, you know, it could ca- go from street to street to street within seconds. And the temperature, like we said, obviously rising to over a thousand degrees centigrade again just shows how fast this fire was spreading. Now, a lot of people did, you know, they did believe that this was the devil's work, this was God punishing them. And you know, because of the year, because it was 1666, they had that that fear of the devil that 666 and you know when you look at it and you look at like i said in the previous episode the blind faith and it's hard to imagine now how people can have that blind faith and have that that complete nothing other than what is written down in the bible and you've got to remember that in this period they believed everything that happened was God either punishing them, or God rewarding them, or it was, everything was linked to that, and this gave them, you know, in certain aspects, it gave them a very good outlook on life, you know, it gave them that very, that very good ability to, to see what's right and wrong, and things like that, but it also then, it gave them that non-understanding, let's say, where they didn't understand the True reasons behind something. This was a pure accident. Apparently, was a pure accident, and therefore, they couldn't see that as anything other than God punishing them for their sins. So we'll carry on like a little, so a little bit with the fire. And the fire spread from Pudding Lane, and it spread like I said, all across London. If anybody ever gets a chance to read a diary of a man named Samuel Pepys, he did a very very good account of this. Um, He was a Navy officer and he did quite a good account of the the fire of London through his own diary. He was woken up early hours in the morning on the 2nd of September and he had a look and said, well, you know, it's too far away from my house to worry about it. I'm not worried. He went back to sleep. When he then woke up later in the morning, obviously he realised that this fire had escalated to, uh, to a severe side size and that's when he actually went to uh, Thomas Bloodworth the Mayor of London and said the only way we're going to stop this is to create what are called fire breaks which is pulling down houses now you've got to remember everything pretty much in history is political this man was running for Mayor of London, he was currently Mayor of London but he was running for the Mayor for the next campaign if he was to then pull it down, pull down houses of aristocrats or anybody who owned a business or if he was to pull down the wrong house to stop this fire then he could lose thousands of votes because he's upset the wrong type of person so he was in a situation where he hesitated he hesitated too long and then was left with no option and the fire had got out of hand and, and fire breaks wouldn't have worked Samuel Pepys then went to the king and advised the king that the mayor wasn't taking control and that the king should authorise these houses to be pulled down again something that takes a long time as you can imagine in every politics across the country nothing is done quickly everything takes time and they didn't really have time to to sort this out it was you know, sort of tough almost. And you know, the the total devastation of London, I mean it destroyed thirteen thousand two hundred homes. So that's and like I said, these are people where that's five, six, seven plus people per per house on one floor. You've then got two, three, sometimes four or five floors to each house so you're talking about homes for around 70 to 80,000 people just destroyed and and you know you're not talking that you know nowadays when there's a fire you could probably go back and you can see certain items that wouldn't have been destroyed in a fire you know they didn't have that everything was made of wood or mud or clay Everything pretty much got destroyed, and you know these streets were unrecognizable after the fire of London. Like I said, it pulled down eighty-seven churches and St. Paul's Cathedral. So the pure size of the fire and the pure, you know, the, the astronomical damage that it had to London, it did cause a few problems. Now like i said it was very common that this was the baker thomas Farriner's fault this was everyone blamed him to start with now obviously he had turned around and said i didn't do it you know the fire was put out there were no fires in my bakery and that started to cause a few rumors now one of the biggest rumors was that it was awesome and this was They they believed, a lot of Londoners believed, that it was actually done by the Dutch. Now, at this time in in history, it was the Second Anglo-Dutch War, so the, the war between England and Holland, or the Dutch, which was from the 4th of March 1665 to the 31st of July 1667. So, during this period, there was a lot of hatred towards the Dutch. Now, the Dutch were... In the 17th century, I would say they were probably the power in the world. They were the biggest... Although, maybe not size of Holland is not, not necessarily the biggest in the world. But the, the Dutch Empire was, was massive. The Dutch language was spoken all across the globe. They were, like I said, probably one of the most powerful countries or empires in the entire world at this time. Now, this did create a lot of fear that the dutch had actually started this fire and this was backed up there was a couple of accounts from history that have stated that when they looked out their window they could see fires popping up all across london at different places in london now it was commonly known that the fire started in pudding lane however a fire does not jump from one side of london to the other and this is where the speculation had come from because possibly the fire could have spread from one side of London to the other but it wouldn't have jumped and with eyewitness accounts saying that the fire had started in one side and then moved to the other side of London with no fire in between and then all of a sudden the whole city ignited that does create that let's say that fear I suppose fear is the right words that that it was not an accident that it was arson, and again it's someone to blame. You know the the British didn't want to blame themselves. They, I suppose again they didn't really want to blame God for it. They they wanted to blame someone, and and the Dutch fit that bill. Added to that, only a month before, in August of sixteen sixty six, the British Navy actually. Sailed into a port in Holland or on the Dutch coast called De Schallen. I'm sure I said that right. And they attacked the the Dutch ships and set fire to the city. Now the British then set fireworks off in London about this great victory that they had. And the Dutch actually said, you know, they came back and said, you know, the, you're 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 going to regret that. You know, we're, we're going to retaliate, this isn't the end of it, so again, you're talking about uh, the British going over to, to the Dutch and burning down one of their towns it does seem plausible that that it, it came back again, one of the other things like I mentioned in the previous episode that the Great Plague of London came they, they believed that that came from, from Holland as well, they believed that came from Amsterdam, so you can almost see this as a type of chemical warfare during this war where, where the you know the Dutch first send over the plague with the rats and then they, they attack with fire and, and burn down the city. So you can see obviously how much fear was going on with the English and how they did genuinely believe that this, this was, was arson. Now you can imagine a lot of foreigners lived in london at this time and actually you know probably weren't against london probably weren't fighting against london or, or against the english they just lived there they had a business and you know they, much as a lot of them do now you know in multicultural society london kind of always has been that multiculture. But you can imagine at this time how dangerous it would have been to be a foreigner in London. You know, this fire is spreading. They believe that the plague potentially was started by foreigners. They now believe that the fire was started by foreigners. If you weren't English, I mean, there were brutal cases where there's evidence for beatings and murders and things like that on the streets of London just because they weren't English. And. That is, again, it fuels this fear that, you know, everyone who's not English is bad. You know, they, they had that fear of they didn't know who it, who it was and therefore anyone is potentially an enemy. And that's, I mean, it's a wonderful tool in politics to create fear, but it doesn't always have the desired effect in the end. So like I said when we look at the fire of London and we look at the scale of the Great Fire and the fact that it did pretty much burn down the entire city of London which the city then had to be rebuilt you know it was built from the ashes of old London and that the hard thing to, to realise is how much London looks different now to what it what it used to look like it's just a completely different city the scary thing with it was obviously for a Londoner you know like I said there's 80 around 80,000 people that were homeless and they had to leave the city Uh, the king actually turned around and you know put out royal proclamations that he wanted people who lived in towns further afield to to take in Londoners to look after them you know they they ended up camping on in hills and things like that it was for, for a Few months after the fire was quite a scary thing, you know. Londoners didn't have anywhere to live. They were in tents. They were sleeping with people who lived further afield. You know, they didn't actually have a home, and until London was rebuilt, they they didn't have anywhere to live. So, you you look at the the devastation that the fire caused, but I don't. When you look at the the death toll. I said officially there was only six people that died in the Great Fire of London, so that does make you sort of think. Well, you know, it can't have been that that bad to human life. Well, you know, eighty thousand people homeless for a, for a long period of time is quite bad. You know, it's not something that you know Londoners. It's just something they had to overcome, and and you know that great. British spirit that we we always seem to have in this country which is just you know keep calm and carry on it's and that's that's what they did you know they 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 waited for london to be rebuilt and and they moved back home and that is something that for me as as you know being british i you know i think that is quite proud about that you know i am quite proud to to sort of say that is our mentality a lot of a lot of british mentality is you know keep calm and just carry on doing what you're doing you know things will things will be all right in the end and i do have that mentality a lot and i you know i do think it's a good a good trait for for us british to have you know we don't we don't have many things to be proud of at the moment and i think that's definitely something so we'll go back to a little bit of the fire like i said we'll we'll go back to sort of the aftermath of of the fire and and how hard it was for the british to to deal with now like i said you had that that first instance where obviously thomas farrower was to blame and then they blamed a a couple of you know the dutch any foreigners things like that they they blamed the pope because at this time britain was um or england was a christian Church of England country, not a Catholic country, you know they they accepted confessions from, there's a, a guy called Robert Huber, a French watchmaker who confessed to, to causing the fire there was um, you know, he, he wasn't it's harder uh, hard way of describing he was, let's say, simple minded, he wasn't all there, and they accepted his, you know. Oh, yeah, he definitely did it because he's confessed to it, and and he ended up being hung for for it. And he, you know, potentially he just didn't he didn't have anything to do with it. You know, they didn't really they were just looking for someone to blame, and the blame the blame train, you know, that's where it went. You know, they went for this guy, then they went for the Dutch, then they blamed the Pope, then they blamed the French, and it was you know if you weren't English. It, they blamed everyone other than than the person who potentially did start it, which is Thomas Thomas Fariner in, in his bakery. So it does throw a few a few problems and and a few issues that that London didn't really know what to deal with. You know, they 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 failed with fighting the fire. They didn't react quick enough. They didn't you know they didn't do anything to to sort it. And it again this goes back to. Now, I've not got any historical evidence to suggest this... ...but this is my personal opinion. But it does go back to... ...when you look at conspiracy theories... ...and you look at certain things that have happened in history... ...and things that people blame their own government for. Now, my first one that always pops to mind is 9-11. Now, I have listened to conspiracy theories... I will not be giving my personal opinion on whether I believe it was an inside job or whether it was a terrorist act because that causes too many problems depending on what way you fall. Now, but it does raise that question as to could the British or the English government have caused this fire themselves and could they have sparked it themselves? Could they have done something to... Clear some of the poverty out of London. You know, it, this it hit a, quite a rundown area. It, you know, it destroyed that that poorer side to London. It also could have been an idea to kill the plague. And the plague was very prominent around the 1665 1666 time, and this could potentially have been a way to get rid of it and how whether it was it did actually work you know after this there were the plague pretty much eradicated out of out of the country after the great fire of london so again there are certain like i said there's no historical evidence to this this is just my opinion but there are certain things that make you wonder why did they not pull down the buildings why did they not use the firefighting equipment at the earliest stage possible you know there was a lot of things that makes you question let's say whether whether this was the the government doing their own thing and you know the house prices from london the house prices suddenly skyrocketed once london had been rebuilt you know rent went up there were even landlords who were trying to charge their tenants rent because their plot of land had been burnt down and they still owned that plot of land you know they were they were still trying to get the rent money out of a building that didn't exist because it was on the plot of land that these people used to live on so it does throw you a few questions and a few weird things that you, you know you might not think about and and you know, give me your opinion. If you guys think it was the Dutch, if you think it was Thomas Fariner, if you think it was this poor Frenchman who was hung because he confessed, if you think it was the government, let me know because I, I'm I'm interested to know what you guys think. You know, and I do I do enjoy it. I do love it when you guys send me little messages and little things on Facebook, just saying you know, can we do this? Can we do that? Um, I've had a, a couple of requests. For shows that that will be coming up, one that I'm quite looking forward to doing, uh, we've had a request for Richard the Third. For those of you who don't know, King Richard is a very, very good, very good subject, very interesting subject. So that'll be something we'll definitely cover at some point. So that's a great one, and that's from Pat. So thanks for that one. Um I say, we will we will do some. Some more requests, send me some more requests. Uh, if you have anything that you want to do, you know, let me know. And we're going to just quickly finish on something that I was tagged in on Facebook a few weeks ago. Now, I'm not sure of the historical facts to all of these, but they are very, very interesting. So I will read those out. It's basically idioms, so they are words or phrases that you may have heard... in the... you know... in... modern day times... but where... where they come from... so... the first one is... uh, don't throw the baby out... with the bath water... so... basically... in this... period in time... baths were basically... a big tub... filled with hot water... basically what they are now... but... the man of the house... went first... and... then... the sons... and then the women... and finally the babies the babies were bathed last so the story goes that the water at that point would be so dirty that you don't you might not see the baby so therefore don't throw the baby out with the bath water that's where that one came from another one that you've probably heard of is raining cats and dogs so this is houses with thatched roofs or thick straw piled roofs which which pretty much everyone in London had at this time and with no wood underneath, so this was basically a place where animals would, you know, small animals, cats, not so much cats and dogs, but mainly it was mice, rats and things like that, they lived in the roof, when it rained and it became slippery, the animals would fall off the roof, and that would be, hence the saying it's raining cats and dogs again, not not 100% sure on how factual these are but it was quite interesting for me to read another one is dirt poor basically if you had dirt on the floor then you were dirt poor most houses in London at this time they didn't have anything on the floor and therefore they were dirt poor the houses that had the proper flooring or decent flooring were you know richer people who could afford it the another one that i found quite interesting was called the threshold now obviously we all know the threshold threshold of the door so on and so forth it says the wealthy had slate doors that would get slippery in the winter when wet so they would spread thresh on the floor to keep help them keep their footing in the winter wore on they kept adding more and more thresh and when you open the door, it would start slipping outside, and a piece of wood was placed between the thresh and the door to keep it in place, and that would be a threshold. So it was holding the thresh in place. So that's that one. So there are a few little things that you know thresh was like a type of straw. So that was, it would stop you from slipping on the floor. There are a few wonderful things from history that you you know are a little bit fun Uh, another one is obviously to bring home the bacon that was pretty much a man was wealthy if he could bring home bacon because bacon was you know quite a decent cut of pork and if you bought home bacon then you were quite well off and that was the saying he's bringing home the bacon Uh, another one would be to chew the fat so this is where they would Basically, they, they would cut off a little bit of the bacon... ...but it would be the fat that would be given to the guests. So, that would be where they would cut it off. If you had friends and family around... ...then you would cut parts of your bacon off... ...and, and let them, you know, share it with, the, with everyone else. And that would... You'd sit around and chat and that would be chewing the fat. So, like I said, there are certain things there that are a little bit more a bit more fun i suppose if if that's the way you want to see them but like I say it's just uh gives you a little bit of an insight to that you know 16th 17th century sayings that are still being used today now they may not have the same meaning as they do today as they did then sorry but they do definitely you know they are definitely still used um i mean raining cats and dogs is used constantly in england because it's constantly raining so you know we it's it's interesting i say more than more than anything so we're going to leave it there for this week and you know hopefully on a on a lighter a lighter note in the next couple of weeks you know hopefully it will get a little bit better and and the world is starting to recover from this you know it's a scary time out there and i do hope that all my listeners and, and you know your friends and families are all staying safe and you know I don't want to you know don't want to hear any any tragedies you know stay inside stay safe stay listening to my podcast get keep yourselves you know keep yourselves isolated unless you have to go out and you know hopefully people will start listening you know uh, the problem is this you know we're not going to learn from it if we don't listen and I do hope that you know, you guys. At least, like I said, like I said in the last episode, I, I hope at least my listeners are are paying attention and, and you know doing what they what their governments telling them. We shall uh, we shall see. But like I said to everybody, stay safe. If you want to contact me, get us on Facebook. This week in History Pod podcast on Facebook. If you want to email me, it's twihpod at gmail.com and like i mentioned in the last episode we are starting patreon within the next couple of weeks now like i said we we'll, i think my first the first few episodes on patreon will will cover the greatest britain as he was voted which is sir winston churchill and that will probably be a three or four part episode and you know with like i said it's not something you can do in one episode so that will be on patreon i believe the starting Price for Patreon is two dollars a month, so it's not, you know, it's not astronomically expensive. You know, you can put in as much or as little as you want. It's entirely up to you. But anybody who joins Patreon, you know, once those once those episodes have gone up, I don't expect anybody to be paying for nothing. So once those episodes are up, I'll let you guys know. Get yourselves on there, and you'll get special access to to certain episodes that we do, and. I'm not sure what we're going to be doing at the weekends. This one's going up today. Today is Thursday the 9th, so that should be going up today. And we should be getting another one out over the weekend. So we'll play a little game. I'll put a little picture up today on Thursday the 9th. So hopefully you guys will uh, will see that on the Facebook group. If you're not on there, like I said, get yourselves on there. And you'll see what, what we're going to be playing and there'll be a picture and you can guess the episode for this weekend. But that's, uh, that's all for me. So thank you for listening. And just remember everybody, we all have history. Make yours great. Geico presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking Geico offers claim service 24-7 with personalized attention from an assigned team. Geico offers claim service? Um, I I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it a go. Think really hard. Okay, abs, abs, abs. abs. keep thinking. To manifest more Geico in your life, go to geico.com.